following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn your Bible to Esther chapter 5. Those of you who are familiar with and perhaps love the card game of bridge understand that the four players begin the game by bidding to see which of the four suits is Trump. The Trump goes to the highest bidder and, as you know, the Trump suit overpowers the other suits. Even if it's a two or a three, will Trump out-Trump an ace or a king? We live in an arbitrary world where the Trump keeps changing. It's wealth or power or looks or appearance. Thankfully, in the kingdom of God, we have a true and reliable Trump. Meekness trumps pride in the eyes of God. In our text, we have a vivid contrast to help us to choose what is pleasing in the sight of God. I read from Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. 
Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we would ask that you might open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from this portion of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, was renowned for brilliance and courage, among many other wonderful character qualities. But one uh, note of, of history is how President Lincoln picked a ca- his cabinet, not a collection of yes-men who would simply rubber-stamp his policies, but rather many of whom who were opponents and even adversaries with one another. At least three or four of them were prominent nominees in the Republican National Convention of 1860, and through various political factions and various maneuvering, President Lincoln rose to become the nominee to the chagrin of his opponents. Now, two of those main opponents were William Seward and, and uh, Salmon Chase, the Secretary of State and the Secretary of the Treasury, both of whom had been, had been governors, who had been more prominent, who had been more politically active than Abraham Lincoln prior to his rise to the presidency. And these very capable and ambitious men, uh, like many of their contemporaries and many opponents to the president, thought of Lincoln initially as a half-wit, as backwoods, as ill-fitted to be the president. Each of them initially thought that they would be the true leader among the cabinet. But they soon found that was not to be the case. With Lincoln's leadership, his boldness and determination to guide his uh, uh, very um, well-crafted, put-together cabinet. And uh, as history has shown, Lincoln leaned more heavily upon Seward than the others. And in fact, the two of them built a deep bond of friendship and companionship. And in fact, Seward, who was probably his most fierce critic and opponent at the beginning, grew to love and respect the president perhaps more than any other, even coming to recognize Lincoln's indispensable leadership. In contrast, Salmon Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury, never really grew to love the president. In many ways, historians note that he, in many ways, was clouded by his own pride, his vanity, and his determined ambition to become the president himself. He was known to have misused his powers as a secretary of treasury, even as he was raising money for the Civil War effort, was, was aiding his supporters, helping him to spread a bad report about the president helping him to garner support for a potential run in 1864 to become the lead Republican nominee. While his political fortune and the providence of God would have it, Chase's standing fell, and he did not run or win the nominee as Lincoln re-won it again in 1864. And Chase, in his pride, resigned from his secretary position for a third and final time And much to his surprise, Lincoln accepted that resignation. 
But Chase could have gone off in the political wilderness. But Lincoln, despite Chase's character assassination, despite his uh, betrayal in the eyes of some, Lincoln was gracious and wise to appoint Salmon Chase to the Supreme Court. In my view, you have a, a rather vivid contrast of the meekness, the humility, and the submission of Seward and the pride and the vanity and the opposition of Salmon Chase. I don't believe Chase was quite the villain that Haman the Agagite proved to be to the Jews, and nor was Seward quite the hero that Esther is in our account. But both were very close to a powerful man. And we must ask the question from our text, what is it that persuades a man of standing? And even more importantly, what is attractive in the sight of God? Scripture is clear. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 11.2 says that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. The whole Psalter opens up with this very vivid contrast. Psalm 1 lays out before the believer two paths. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but rather his delight is in the law of the Lord. He is compared to a tree planted by streams of water. In contrast, the wicked who is like chaff that the wind blows away. The Lord will cast off the wicked who will not stand in the judgment. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In our passage tonight, we have two characters, two different perspectives, two ways and approaches to life. One is the way of wisdom, and one is the way of folly. One demonstrates faith in God. The other demonstrates a man and self-centered faith. One demonstrates humility. The other, pride. One seeks the glory of God. The other falls into destruction. One listens to the counsel of the godly. The other, the advice of fools. Tonight we want to consider Esther's wisdom Haman's folly, and ultimately the Lord's glory in them both. Now, as on verse 1, it says that it was on the third day that Esther robed herself in her queenly splendor and entered into the king's court where she could be seen by him. Now, you'll recall that she would approach this with fear and trepidation. For anyone who, who approached unannounced could face a sentence of death. Only if the king shows favor in the unannounced visitor could the visitor receive acceptance. And in the approach to this confrontation, to this making of request to deliver her people, Esther had called upon Mordecai and the people of Susa to a three-day fast. As soon as the fast was over, notice that Esther took action. She did not procrastinate. She did not dilly-dally. She did not wallow in self-pity or freeze out of fear. She was not stuck in the paralysis of indecision. This young woman, 
though untrained and unprepared in her raising, called for prayer, called for intercession as she was up against something way much far far bigger than herself. She had no worldly assurance of gaining the king's favor. He had a track record of capriciousness, vindictiveness having replaced the prior queen. For all Esther knew, this could be her last day on earth, which in, as far as she knew, could be the Jews' last hope for deliverance from the mortal decree of Haman. Perhaps you've been in high-pressure situations. An important exam that you can't afford to fail. Recall the day of your driver's test. Perhaps an important interview, conflict within the family. It's the bottom of the ninth and your team is down with two outs. It's the fourth quarter and you're behind with the clock ticking. No doubt many of us have experienced the fear of failure. The overwhelming dread of stress and expectation. But I believe it's safe to assume that none of us have faced the kind of pressure that Esther would have faced on this day. How did she prepare? As I said before, she had not been trained She had only been raised by Mordecai to accommodate and to appease the Persian Empire. She fasted. She called upon her people to pray and intercede for her. And it's a good reminder to us that when we are unprepared, when we are facing overwhelming situations, we must pray. We must call out to God and we must play to our strengths as Esther did in her situation. Esther had been trained to accommodate, to please, and to demonstrate respect. And this is precisely the way she approaches the king. She is not the role model of the modern woman who enters into a man's world and fights on a man's terms. She is not bold and confrontational. She does not stare down the king. She does not demand women's rights or equal treatment. Rather, she uses custom. And she utilizes her feminine powers of persuasion, her power and position of influence to persuade the king towards her point of view. I believe that Hollywood is not all that interested in the true biblical version of Esther as it doesn't fit the model of the woman coming in to play a man's role. There's something uniquely feminine and attractive in the way Esther approaches this man of power. Well, we can only imagine Esther's heart rate going out of control. She stood there waiting, waiting for the king to cast his eyes upon her. What expression would he give her? How would he respond? What was going through his mind as he saw his young, beautiful queen approach him uninvited? How would he respond? With irritation? Do not bother me now. Would he ignore her call back later? Sadly, that can be the response of many husbands towards their wives who seek their attention. This pagan king demonstrates graciousness, acceptance, 
And we can only imagine the adrenaline rush in Esther's body as the king extends to her the golden scepter demonstrating favor and welcome. Perhaps she could hardly restrain herself from running or tripping, glad with joy that she had passed the first test. Now this king was wise in the ways of the world. He knew that his queen wanted something. She was clearly risking her life to make a very important request. And he rewards her courage and her respect by allowing her to make her request. And in a display, a common custom of that day of showing generosity and graciousness and not to be taken literally, he says the words, I grant your request even up to the half of my kingdom. It might be something close akin to our saying these days, I would do anything for such and such or so and so. Of course, you don't mean you would do anything, but rather you would be willing to make sacrifice. You would be willing to take on great risk for someone you highly esteemed and cared for. Some wonder why Esther did not immediately make her request. Was she missing her opportunity? Well, commentators debate over how uh, Esther went about her approach. Perhaps she was following customs. Perhaps she did not want to appear too hasty. Or perhaps even she wanted to stress the vital importance of her request by demonstrating delay. Remember, she did not know how the king would respond to her initial approach. But rather, to please the king further, she had already prepared a feast, presuming his graciousness, complimenting him, and inviting him and his highest official, Haman, to a feast that very afternoon. Well, the king grants the request later that feast day, and comes and enjoys the feast with his bride. And a second time, he offers the same gracious offer. What is your request, Queen Esther? I will grant it to you even up to half of my kingdom. And Esther, who is patient and wise, who is not playing games, nor is she being manipulative, rather is seeking further assurance from her king. When she says, if I have found favor, and if it would please the king grant my wish, to grant my wish and fulfill my request, she asks for him to come again the next day. And then she will do as he asked and make this very important request. And there's something about the style and the tone that demonstrates respect in that particular culture, that demonstrates wisdom and patience humility and meekness, something that was highly valued in the eyes of the Persians. And we have in Esther a wise advocate for her people who knows how to demonstrate humility and meekness for their good. During the Lincoln presidency, there were many men who sought pardons for crimes. Uh, One common one was the crime of desertion. As many Union soldiers fled in, in fear and cowardice, which was a crime punishable by death. And Lincoln was a notoriously lenient president, granting many pardons for which he was often criticized. But those who sought pardons were usually helped, especially when women, mothers, wives, and young wives and mothers of children 
would get an audience with the president to beg and plead for leniency and for the life and pardon of a husband or a son who was sentenced to death. And Lincoln had a hard time letting a soldier go to his death after an advocate had come to him, especially a woman in distress, especially a young mother who would be left without a husband and father for her children. But those men who were without an advocate were more likely to suffer execution. It's a reminder that we need an advocate. It helps to have somebody who will approach the one in power to plead on our behalf. Esther went before the king at great personal cost and risk. She had no worldly assurance of success before this man who is notoriously arbitrary. Friends, you and I have an advocate before the great and high king of heaven and earth. And this advocate went before the king at tremendous cost to himself to gain us access into the inner throne room of God at the cost of his own precious blood. Our king is not arbitrary, nor is he vindictive. He is not like Pharaoh, who chose the cupbearer one day and sentenced the baker to death the next day. This great God and king receives those who seek him, who ask him for pardon and for forgiveness. Paul gives us instruction in Philippians 4, 6, when he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Friends, you and I have access. We have a free pass. We have an advocate who has gone before us, before the great and high king. We have pardon. And we are compelled, exhorted, to come and to make intercession as we trust in God's gracious favor that has been given to us in Christ, our advocate. Well, in vivid contrast to the meekness and patience of Esther, we have a warning here in Scripture of a man who was proud and impulsive. I'd like to explore the character of Haman and consider the highs and lows of his vanity and idolatry, that we might take heed and avoid them ourselves. It says in verse 9 that Haman left the king's court joyful and glad of heart. Now, why was that? Well, it's revealed later as he is boasting profusely to his wife and his friends about his great wealth, his many sons, and all the promotions that he has enjoyed from the king. All these were indicators of what made him happy. He liked his wealth. He liked to show off his many sons, his strength, his legacy. But what inflated Haman's ego the most was his public honor and recognition in the sight of others. Verse 11 gives extended treatment to the many promotions and the public honors he had enjoyed from this king of Persia. He goes on to elaborate how he had been elevated above all the other officials and servants of the empire. Haman took great pride in being better than others and having many to look down upon. And best of all, he was the only 
one invited with the king to the queen's feast. And he had a return appointment the next day. This vain man cherishes his precious as being singled out to enjoy the exclusive rights and privileges that others are denied. Haman clearly demonstrates an idolatry of the praise and honor and the esteem of others. It's not wrong to achieve things, nor is it wrong to receive recognition, but to base one's worth, one's validation, and source of joy on such esteem of others is a God that fails. One of my mentors in seminary warned me and some other students of a common idolatry that afflicts men in the ministry. And that is this. It's the the idolatry of praise and affirmation. A man in public service of, of many sorts can grow very fond of compliments, grow almost addicted to the respect and the thanks of others. And this wise mentor of mine counseled myself and others that when complimented in ministry, to thank the person with respect, but in your heart of hearts, give that glory to God. Because if you don't, that praise, that nugget will get lodged inside. And massage that ego, it becomes a cancer that eats away on the inside, leaving it rotten and good for nothing. Well, how do I know that Haman really had an idol of public praise and recognition? Well, this one indicator is the the great joy and delight he had as he boasts before his family and friends. But a second indicator is observing the way he responds to Mordecai's refusal to honor him. In verse 9, it says that when Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him, Haman was filled with wrath. The same wrath that provoked him in chapter 3 to approach the king and shrewdly get a death sentence, the destruction of the entire Jewish people. Haman restrains himself from punishing Mordecai on the spot. And after pontificating to his admirers at home of his great wealth and his sons and his promotions, he then professes to his group of admirers that all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Really? All of those honors mean nothing as long as this one common man refuses to pay you honor and respect. You need to have perspective here. Haman has a unique privilege. He is one of the most honored men in the world. Privileged by one of the most powerful men in the ancient world. He has wealth, he has power, he has status, he has legacy, he is admired by many. And when one common man at the gate will not pay him the same honor, he falls into a fit of rage. It deflates his balloon. 
Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Haman demonstrates an insecurity of the highest degree. His idol is stroked by the accolades and praises of others, but comes crashing down through one act of noncompliance. Friend, what things rob you of your joy? Is there something upon which your security is hanging onto, which in God's eyes is trivial and irrelevant? You are an heir of heaven. If you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of the high king of heaven. You have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. You have an inheritance that can never perish, fade, or spoil. The God of the universe has set his affections upon you. And yet, is all this worth nothing as long as fill in the blank? As long as he doesn't love you? As long as she doesn't respect you? As long as you are not recognized not paid, not approved of, not accepted, but as long as you have not achieved something. And the list goes on and on. What good desires in your life might have grown into insidious idols, these things that can fill you with the greatest of ecstasy and yet descend you into the deepest despair. Anything that assaults us that evaporates our joy in Christ, must be uprooted, cast out, and burned in the fire. I think there's another lesson to be learned from the character of Haman. Consider the counsel that you keep. He boasts before his friends and family. He also laments that all these things are worthless because Mordecai the Jew will not respect him. His family and friends could have reminded him of the good things in his life. They could have said, forget about Mordecai the Jew. Who cares? What difference does it make? They could have knocked some sense and perspective into this vain man. But no, to feed his vanity further, they suggest to him constructing a 75-foot-high gallows to have Mordecai hung up. This vindictive suggestion soothed Haman's soul. It was a delicious thought to him watching Mordecai die hanging up so high to allow him to sleep in peace. Sweet dreams. Like the counselors of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, or such these family and friends of Haman. You recall the story of how after Solomon's death and Rehoboam becomes king of Israel and Judah, the northern tribes, having burdened for years under Solomon's reign, come to seek relief, to ask for a lightening of their load. And you recall that the older counselors of his father Solomon recommended to Rehoboam to lighten their load to speak graciously to these people from the north. And they will be your servants forever. In his pride, Rehoboam rejected that counsel. 
And he sought the counsel of the young men of his court, who arrogantly and boastfully enticed him to presume to be bigger and better than his father, and to demand subservience of the north, and to tighten and and add to their burdens, making them heavier and more grueling. Rehoboam's pride led to the split of the kingdom that almost led into a brutal civil war. Grievous is the idolatry of pride. And this act led into the great idolatry of the northern tribes and the eventual exile into the land of the north. The counsel you keep matters. Do you surround yourself with people who only tell you what you want to hear? Are you afraid to hear things that are distasteful to you? Do you only tell other people what they want to hear? Do you allow others to challenge you, to question and check the pride of your heart, to confront the idols that they see in you? There is much poor counsel in our day. We need better biblical and bold counsel among true believers, true friends, who will challenge our hearts and point us to Christ. There is one who spoke the truth, who never minced words, who examined our hearts and yet showed us grace and acceptance. He was the meek and humble. He was tempted to seize power with his own cunning. After 40 days in the wilderness, the Lord Jesus was famished and thirsty and tempted to seize control. His followers repeatedly challenged and attempted tempted him to overthrow, to lead a revolution, to overthrow the Roman Empire, to establish himself as king. He was prompted and tempted to avoid the cross. And yet the Lord Jesus remained meek to follow his father's plan. It was his food, his, his food was to do the will of him who sent him. Equality with God was not something to be grasped. But rather, in his meekness, our Lord, the suffering servant, humbled himself, endured the rejection of men, was smitten by God, a man of sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. The Lord placed upon him the iniquity of us all. Yes, meekness crushed the pride of our great enemy. It overthrew the empire. And it transforms the hearts of men and women even down through the ages. Only the meek will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. As they acknowledge sin, as they receive God's grace, as we deny ourselves and follow him who made himself of no reputation. Last year's summer blockbuster film, The Avengers, introduces a villain named Loki from another planet who comes in pride and vanity to wage war upon the earth to rule over the human race. And the only group powerful enough to stop him is a ragtag team of superheroes who have ego problems of their own. Chief among them is Iron Man, Tony Stark. He is proud, he is vain, he is a prima donna. Consumed with himself, seeking pleasure and the attention of others. 
Along the line, the man of greater integrity, Captain America, challenges Stark with his character weaknesses, presses him and pushes him to rise to the occasion. And when the moment is most dire, and the team and the city of New York is under threat of destruction, it's Iron Man who delivers the city. And a decisive blow to their invading enemy at cost to himself. Tony Stark had to be willing to lay down his life to save others. He had to die to his pride. His vanity and his self-promotion and put others above himself. This brilliant and powerful man, protected by a superior suit of armor, demonstrates a heart of meekness, of courage, wisdom, in humility, sacrificing himself in meekness trumps pride and brings the enemy down. The way of the cross is folly to men, and yet it is the very wisdom of God. There is only one advocate who stands before our God and King, who enables us to come before him as we embrace his meekness his humility, his wisdom, and his glory. I urge you to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to embrace the way of the meek who indeed will inherit the earth. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you. Thank you for such a vivid contrast of character in these pages of Scripture. Thank you for giving us greater insight into the Lord Jesus, the one who is meek, and humble, and yet overthrew pride and temptation, sin and destruction. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have triumphed by the cross. We praise you and we bless you. Amen.